Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host of these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. My guest today is Dr. Wallace Sanborn, Chair of the Department of English, Mass Communication and Drama, and Graduate Program Head, Master of Arts and Master of Fine Arts in Literature, Creative Writing, and Social Justice Program at Our Lady of the Late University in San Antonio, Texas. Wallace is author of Animals in the Fiction of Cormac McCarthy, published 2006, and The American Novel of War, A Critical Analysis and Classification System, published in 2012. He's the editor of the Klondike Stampede. His work has appeared in They Wrote On, Blood and Radiant and Tragedy of the American West. Gale's Contemporary Literary Criticism, Harold Bloom's Modern Critical Views, Cormac McCarthy Journal, Southwestern American Literature, Texas Books in Review, Voices de la Luna, Iron Horse Literary Review, and Concho River Review. Most recently, he's published Reconsidering Horses and Horsemanship of Blood Meridian and the Border Trilogy in the Cormac McCarthy Journal, and forthcoming, The Vietnam War and No Country for Old Men. Wallace, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Scott. So the way we always start off is I'll ask, how did you discover Cormac McCarthy? Well, this will be a bit of a meandering story, as all Cormac McCarthy stories are. So <laughs> when I was in graduate school at Texas Tech in about 1999, I want to say, I took a class uh, with Patrick W. Shaw, an old Cormacian of sorts, who published a couple of essays on the Border Trilogy and Blood Meridian. And then he had an essay, uh, Female Presence, Male Violence and the Art of Artlessness in the Border Trilogy, which was in uh, Myth, Legend, Dust, which Rick Wallach edited. And we read All the Pretty Horses and Blood Meridian uh, in the class, and I was instantly enthralled, especially with Blood Meridian. And uh, one of the uh, assignments in the class was to write a book review. So I did uh, Rob Jarrett's uh, Twain Cormac McCarthy book. Ah, yeah. The following spring came around, I went to the... Uh, Popular Culture Association, Southwest Culture Association meeting in Albuquerque. And I was actually presenting on Charles Bukowski, but I sat down at a table and coincidentally at this table was Rob Jarrett. And so uh, I was surprised and I had the McCarthy book in my backpack. And so I pulled it out and I said, this is you. And he said, this is me. And so he said, well, we have a couple of McCarthy panels. So why don't you come to the panels? So I went up to the panels and I can't remember what the speakers were speaking on. One of them was on chess and all the pretty horses. After the the meeting later that day, I went to a restaurant near the hotel and there was this guy sitting at the bar and um, our own Harold Bloom, if you know <laughs> to whom I refer. I do. And so we started talking about baseball in the 1970s because I grew up in Houston and was a, an Astros buddy. So the Houston Astros had a thing where kids could run the bases before the games and that kind of stuff. And so we talked about the Astros and baseball in the 70s. And so then I went back to Texas Tech and uh, Dr. Shaw said, well, how was the, the conference? And I said, well, I met Rob Jarrett and he goes, ah, the Twain guy. And I said, yeah. And so, and then. Um, and let me pause for a second. So the people who don't know it, this is not Mark Twain, but this is a, a book series by Twain Publishers, spelled T-W-A-Y-N-E. And they have a series of, and I don't remember what the series are called. They have several series, but many of them are kind of introductory guides to, you know, this American author, that American author. So 
for instance, there's a Twain book on Hemingway and a Twain book on Faulkner and on Melville and, of course, Corey McCarthy. So sorry to interrupt, Ross. Oh, no, no, of course. And so uh, Dr. Shaw said, oh, that's great. And so I said, I also met this guy named Rick Wallach. And we talked baseball. He goes, Rick Wallach, he founded the Cormac McCarthy Society. <laughs> You've got to maintain contact with this guy and join the society. So I joined the society. And, um, you know, Rick Wallach changed my life in a number of ways. And so after that, I started going to this conference in Albuquerque every year. And I'd see Rick there. And so a couple of years later, when I was Going through graduate school, um, you know, Rick, I mean, I was in a society and started working on my dissertation. And so uh, Dr. Shaw said, fill a scholarly void. And so at that time, there were only about 64 articles on MLA, the International Bibliography for Scholars, and a handful of books, Sacred Violence, uh, Perspectives. Myth, Legend, Dust. Right, Myth, Legend, Dust, the Vereen Bell, seminal text, and so um, notes on Blood Meridian. And so you could read the entire corpus of McCarthy scholarship at one time, right. which, of course, you can't now. And, and I have to tell you, as someone who wrote his dissertation on Faulkner, and at that point in the MLA, he was second only to Shakespeare in the most articles and books written on him. Uh, I don't, I, that's probably changed over the you know, intervening a quarter century or however it's or, or longer that that's been, but it would be really nice to be in more at the ground floor with a writer than the yeah. choking on the trail dust, so to say. Yeah, no doubt about it because now there's hundreds, hundreds, 500 articles and, you know, 30, 40, 50 books on McCarthy. And so you can't read everything. And, and of course, Faulkner, thousands and thousands of essays and articles and books, of course. Well, I was just going to say, I wonder how many people, who are in, let's call it, second wave of McCarthy studies, mentioned Rick Wallach. Uh, you know, for me, the person who was like Rick was Chip Arnold. Yeah. And I kind of discovered McCarthy a little more on my own, but again, with a you know, nod from an old professor. But I did get to know Rick, of course, through the McCarthy Society. And so he's been so, his generosity is just so amazing. And he's done so much to to foster people's interest and help. And we had a, a great couple episodes, one with Rick and then one with, Peter Joseph telling Rick Wallach stories yeah. that have been fun for people who are curious about that. Yeah. Peter Joseph is great with Rick Wallach. So uh, when we were in Mexico in Monterey a couple of years ago, uh, Peter Joseph's presentation was on this old tattered blood Meridian edition. The, the first Rick Wallach held blood Meridian that he got <laughs> in Australia. And, and so yeah, Peter's excellent at that, but so when I was in graduate school, I decided that we needed a book on animals and the fiction of Corinne McCarthy. And so I started researching it and there was not a lot. And so I collected my sources and I was trying to write a dissertation that would be a book. So I didn't want to spend two years of my life uh, writing something, you know, that the typical old school four chapter dissertation that becomes nothing but dust. And so... And so we wrote it as a pre-book manuscript. And so I did a, back then there were eight novels and then Gardner's Son and Stonemason and a couple of excerpts of stories. And so, so it fit nicely into a chapter by chapter coverage. Yeah. So I did the dissertation. And then the first year I was out of graduate school, I going to Southwest PCA, uh, they have a book room where they have publishers. And so I wrote up a one page abstract and 
And I dropped it off with every publisher who was interested in, you know, modern, postmodern lit, literature of the Southwest, literature of the South. And a couple months later, McFarland called me and said they wanted to publish the book. And so six months out of grad school, out of book contract. So I was very, very lucky in that regard. And so. Yeah, McFarland's done a great job as, as times have gotten tougher and the market has gotten stricter. And academic publishers have tightened their belts and are, are much more kind of concerned about sales than they are necessarily about coverage, uh, to use, a, I guess, a bad term. But I, I think you know what I mean. Yeah. McFarland has really filled that niche well. I think they're, uh, I've kind of known a couple of people with that press for a very long time through other groups. And, and it's good to see that how well they've done. And I hope they've you know, continue to prosper given how the academy waxes and wanes these days. Yeah. You know that Southwestern Poplar Cultures, uh, excuse me, Southwestern Poplar Culture Association Conference has really become like the the Diet McCarthy Conference every year, hasn't it? And I yeah. know there used to be there used to be an American Literature Association Fiction Symposium would do the same thing. We'd always have two or three McCarthy panels and have yeah. a lot of myself and Diane Luce and. Stacy, Rick Wallach on a number of occasions, Alan Joseph, people like that would would do papers. And so, but I became aware a few years ago how much you guys were doing out in Albuquerque. And a lot of times you'll talk to people in the McCarthy conference, say, well, we see you in Albuquerque. I'm like, no, I can only afford to do one thing a year. And this was it. But yeah. And of course, that's that's a short drive for you and a long haul for me, just like the Savannah conference would have been a long haul for you. So we've got this book. And I, you know, I think I can very well remember being somewhere. At a, at a literary conference. And I want to say it was South Atlantic Modern Language Association and talking to Gary, is it Mitchum with McFarland and this book being right out of the table and thinking, wow, someone should have do already done this. That's amazing. Someone finally did it and picking it up then and there. Wallison, I, the, because there's so much going on, why don't we begin at the beginning, as they say, because there's some weird animal stuff going on in the Orchard Keeper. There is, there is. And Really quickly, one more thing on Rick Wallach. He has been a tremendous friend to my scholarship, and McFarland's been great with me as well. So all you listeners out there, send an email to Rick Wallach at the Cormac McCarthy Society if you ever want to uh, touch base with Cormacians. He is, he is so friendly to everyone. But, okay, The Orchard Keeper, McCarthy's first book. Generally speaking, the animal's book is prefaced on four modes that are related to animals and death. McCarthy, of course, says, you know, why write of anything other than, than death? Um, and so that's a paraphrase, of course. The first mode in which McCarthy presents animal death is a biologically deterministic manner. And, and so I have biological determinism as events that are causally determined by natural laws, which are themselves determined by a combination of environment and genetics and so part of environment of course is proximity to man mm -hmm. and so the proximity to man affects the survivability of animals and so if we look at the orchard keeper the first thing that i looked at in the prime focus of the chapter of the orchard keeper and, and i've done some other work on the orchard keeper as well which i'll discuss after this is there exists in the orchard keeper a feline hierarchy right right and so at the bottom of the hierarchy, you have domestic felines, cats, the kittens. So we see in uh, Mr. Eller's store, the next level up, you have uh, feral cats, uh, the cat who's carried off by the owl. 
The next level up, you have Wampus cats, the legendary cats that right. are um, born of a, a panther and a woman. The hierarchy apex is the panther, of course, the um, apex predator in the southeast. And so if we look at the bottom of the hierarchy, the domestic kittens, in the scene at Mr. Eller's store, we see a box of kittens that are goopy, nappy, ratty, right? Um, skinny, scrawny, mewling. They've got goop on their eyes. Um, they're in a box that's been tumped over and they're walking around, meow, meow, crying. <laughs> and Marion Salder says to Mr. Mr. Eller, a Christian would have drowned them. And so, which, you know, saying basically put them out of their misery, you right. know, the Christian thing to do. And so um, there's also mention of some dead cats out back. And so, which are even lower in the hierarchy. So that calls to reason that the only road left for these cats is an imminent death. And then towards the end of the little scene, a uh, little girl who's barely better off than these little kittens picks up the kittens and leaves with them. Oh, also one of the kittens falls into some tobacco spit and right. is suitably unimpressed with that. Yeah. So and then the next level up, we have this uh, feral cat that's, skinny and wet and goes from smokehouse to smokehouse and and is in um first the cat goes to uncle ather's smokehouse and it's raining in there and then the cat goes to mildred ratner's smokehouse and and is gnawing on a piece of meat and mildred ratner comes in there and the cat screams and leaves and and then there's a shadow that's swooping over the cat and and it Turns out it's an owl and the owl swoops down and takes the cat and carries it away. And so then even a feral cat is not worthy of life in McCarthy. Then we have the wampus cat. Or, or not guaranteed of life, right? Not guaranteed. Yeah, there's, there's no one promised you as a rose garden. You know? No, and it's definitely not in McCarthy. So, and then we have the wampus cat, or then we have the bobcats and lynx who are not mentioned in the, who are not seen in the book, but are mentioned. Right. And they have bounty value. And so this becomes a motif that we'll see all through McCarthy's works that animals who have bounty value for their meat or their skin will be killed by man and resold. And we see this later with the wolf, of course. Right. And so, um, and Warren, depressing. yeah. And Warren Pulliam and, uh, John Wesley Ratner talk about the bobcat and the lynx and, you know, how to set traps for it. And, and so, but we never see him in the text. So, and then we have the legendary wampus cat, which is a cat that is a woman and a cat panther that breed and lead to the wampus cat. Right. And so the wampus cat is legendary and screams in an unnatural way. And Uncle Adder dreams of wampus cats and being um, there's an eye motif with the wampus cat. And then at the apex, we have the panther who is the master predator. Right. And we see the panther in a couple of scenes and one important scene, a memory scene, Uncle Adler's thinking of back when he was married and when he was doing some dynamiting on a road crew, they uh, blew up a den and it killed all the kits in the, uh, the uh dan except for one and uncle ather brought the the panther kit home and and so the 
the she panther eventually starts stalking him and stealing his pigs each right. night. And and after three pigs are stolen, it's like, okay, here, take the kit back. And so so no pigs were stolen after that. And so you have this master predator that that is worthy and equal to man, and of course is the least proximal in most situations. Right. And so kittens are gonna die, feral cats probably gonna die. Wampus cat legendary scares man. Panther real terrifies man. And so um, you have this inversely proportional feline hierarchy in the text. When I first read The Orchard Keeper, it kept saying painter. It's a painter. We got some painter. I said, painter, painter. What are they painting? That's old Tennessee. Yeah. (laughs) And so finally I figured out, yeah, of course, they're talking about panthers. So. And I think I might have been producing Marion Silder's name wrong for 20 years. I'm not quite sure. So the feline hierarchy was what I looked at in the book, but there are all sorts of other animals in the Orchard Keeper. If you look through the text closely, what you will see, and I think is very interesting, is there are a lot of animals that are analog with the Bible, primarily the Old Testament, primarily, if you look at it, the plagues of Egypt. So there are frogs and there are grasshoppers and there are flies. And so there are clean and unclean animals. There's a lot of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in the text. Also, what's interesting in The Orchard Keeper is it's the beginning of McCarthy using simile and metaphor in association with human beings. Because he says, Mildred Ratner has eyes like a toad. Yeah, And so it's something we see all along his entire body of work. And so we'll see this when we get to the road. There's very few animals, but there are a ton of similes and metaphors. But if you think about that in this text, you've got Kenneth Ratner's movements are slithery like a snake. Right. Uh, S- Salder gathers hitchhiking boys as one might gather hounds. They're wedged into his coop like crated chickens. They watch the driveway like a flock of curious birds. A girl's head in Salder's auto mirror is dark and bushy as a bear. Huh. Aaron Conister stretches his neck like a mute rooster. Saloon dancers are turkeys trotting. Uh, Salder's hands pauses bird-like. All through the text, we get the simile and metaphor uh, relating human movements and human behaviors with animals, which is really interesting, of course. I going to ask you, what about, you know, if we go back to the wampus cat, too, for a second. Yeah. What about that old notion of like uh, a witch's familiar, you know, the idea that the the devil has given them some kind of magical beast or demonic spirit inheriting an animal to help them do their dark bidding. I mean, aren't there some weird elements of that when you get Ownby's old? I think definitely with Ownby's dreams and memories, he dreams of Wampus cats. He hears them in his dreams and their, their screams are non-natural. Right. And so they're supernatural. And so they're beyond the natural world, this wampus cat thing. And there's always this motif of the eyes of the wampus cat. The eyes are very voyeuristic and they have power in their eyes. And I think this supernatural element of the wampus cat, though, is McCarthy showing a window into the past ah. because the characters set in, you know, the early 1940s are very much in the present. Right. And right. so this supernatural aspect, I think, is only associated with other and, you know, Owen B. 
Whereas with John Wesley is very much trying to get by day by day and Marion Salder day by day. And most of the other characters are existing in the contemporary moment. Whereas right. the supernatural aspect, again, this McCarthy always has these elements of the vanishing past in all of his texts. And Owenby, of course, is symbolic of this vanishing past. It's going to be overrun by, you know, TVA and the nuclear weapons test, atomic weapons testing and, and the changes that are coming on, federal government coming in and things. The past is gone, but not for, you know, either Owenby, you know, and part of that past is superstition and supernatural belief. Yeah, absolutely. So... I, I interrupted you a minute ago. Was there another place you were headed? Uh, you know, I got some more bugs. We got flies and fly speck and, you know, fl- in the uh, Eller's store. And we've got uh, something with the each of the plagues in the Egypt, you know, the flies and the frogs and the locusts are peripherally Reference. brought in to your right. And so... It can't be accidental that McCarthy does this, all this Old Testament animal stuff. Um, what's interesting about the the plague of the frogs is God, you know, kills the frogs, but he leaves them. So they stink up Egypt. So there's an olfactory motif there. And then when Marion Salder pulls out Ratner from the trunk of his car, there's this stench there too, right? Rotting corpse stench. So right. you got this loose analog of these rotting frogs that stink. And then you've got this loose analog of Ratner in Silder, you know, when he pulls his body out. So, and then of course you got Mildred Ratner with the eyes like a toad. And so there's all kinds of weird loose analogies in the text. So that can be tied to these um, plagues, but something else I thought that was interesting is that there's a scene towards the end of the, um, the, the text where John Wesley has this bass, right? Right course fish is symbolic of jesus and you know jesus fed the masses with the fish right right? john wesley catches this bass and he cleans it and the tiny heart is in the palm of his hand still beating and then of course jesus feeding the five thousand in matthew 14 you know the symbolic value of fish means as a means of clean sustenance as well as the food directly associated with christ cannot be ignored the heart is a symbolic locus of the soul and the fish is a symbol of the Christ. And John Wesley holds heart, soul, and the divine in his hand. He's the only character to be saved, so to speak, from the plagues in the text. And he has a famously theological name, so it automatically makes yeah. you lean that way a little bit. Yeah, so it's very interesting. And so we have John Wesley, of course, with the hawk bounty as well, yeah. kind of refusing to be part of these people who are again, you know, causing environmental havoc, or at least at first he is part of it. And then he changes and and tries to recant from it or renounce it, I guess I should say. Right. And John Wesley feeds the sparrowhawk grasshoppers for three days and then it dies. There's a lot of threes in McCarthy's work as well. Absolutely. When we get to the end of the road, I always ask my students, so we've been talking about all this stuff, and the father dies. How long is the boy going to stand there? I said, "You, it, if you haven't read a word just from our discussion, you know it was three days." Yeah, yeah. So, and I think it has to do with McCarthy's. You know, he can say that he wasn't heavily influenced by Catholicism, but we know that the Catholicism runs deep in McCarthy. Yeah. So, yeah, ab- absolutely. 
but with the, the Sparrowhawk bounty as well, um, you know, he takes it in and says chicken hawk bounty. Because the oh, chicken yeah. hawks are the ones they're trying to get, to get in. He goes, she goes, it's little eyes. It's just a baby, right? And yeah. so he takes it in. But then he also is trying to um, get a bounty for uh, the mink. Remember the mink that the cat right, chews on the feral cat? Right. So th- this bounty is, omnipre- is not omnipresent, but it's repetitive. And then they also go coon hunting as well. And, right. you know, you can sell coon skins as well. So... But so this bounty, animal's bounty, this bounty value to pull in a little Das Kapital, yeah. you know, is very important in McCarthy's works. If an animal has value to man, better dead than alive, the animal will be dead. You do see that that bounty motif a, a number of times. You see it, yeah. you know, not only um, here, you, it, but as you said before, the wolf and the, and the crossing, you have so, the... Even when the cowboys and seeds of the plane go out to hunt up, you know, the, the wild dogs and they're hunting them with, yeah. with their lassos. It's yeah. just a weird, it's a weird sequence. Yeah. And uh, of course, in the Sutri, of course, he's, sh- he's shooting down the bat. Hargate, right. Hargate is shooting down the bats, trying to get the bat bounty. And yeah, with the, you know, hitting them with the flipper and the poison meat. Yeah. So as we move then into outer dark, there's kind of one big, there's two sequences of the animals there. Did you cover, did you go into outer dark much in your, in your book? Well, I did swines as harbingers of human death and outer dark. Whenever you see a swine scene, somebody's going to die thereafter. And so you have these wow. scenes with, um, you have these scenes whereby there might be a shoat or a, a pig or something else going on. And then immediately thereafter, a human being will be killed. And very often the triune is, you know, at hand and kills him. But for example, the squire dies, you know, immediately after a swine scene. And, wow. and then yeah. the, there's at the end, there's this long scene with the pig drover and I think his name is Vernon. And he's talking, they're talking about pigs are sneaky. And so, the herd of swine eventually goes off the cliff into the river. And of course the drover goes down and he's like, ah, and he goes down and dies as well. You know, repetitively you see the swine human death motif. So, well, and that's a biblical sequence too, right? From uh, the book of Mark where he casts unclean spirits into the, the swine who rush off, go over a, uh, you know, and in, in, over a cliff and into a lake and, and drown. So here it's the river. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And of course, uh, of cloven hoof, you know, the swine does right. not chew the cud, but has a cloven hoof. Uh, so the swine is unclean as well. So, so that's, that's what I did for the, uh, for outer dark was the swine is harbinger of human death. You, with the orchard keeper, you have animals dying with outer dark. You have animals you know, foreshadowing human death. Right. So it's a bit of an inverse there. Well, we've got that horse on the ferry boat at the end, yeah. who's kind of a center of just, I don't know, unbridled chaos. That kind chaos, of, exactly. You know, gets things to rolling as well. Yeah, well, cult, yeah, because they're in the dark too when the, the ferry breaks loose and the horse is just rampaging back and forth on right. the ferry, trying, down, trying to run down Cullen. And finally, the horse goes off the edge of the ferry and and so, again, that's a pretty unusual scene for a horse in the McCarthy work. Uh, right. Of course, it's very early McCarthy. That's before he had gone out west. So, 
Yes. Is there any, uh, do you tackle anything particularly in, um, I can only, I can think of one sequence with an animal, but there might be more than that in child of God. Uh, child of God. I looked at bovines and levity. Ah. And so, and so Lester, of course is such a bleak text, but you know, Lester, um, he, the scene I looked at in particular was Lester is trying to get this cow to move is in a river and he shoots a oh, cow right. in an accident. It's like, oh, crap, I just shot this cow. And then he tries to pull it, and he almost decapitates another <laughs> cow. And it's just a, a, a comic scene in a very, very bleak text. So, And that's what I did for Child of God. There's also the scene where he gives a men, what seems to be a mentally dis, disabled child a bird yeah. to play with. And the bird, the child ends up chewing off the baby bird's uh, feet, yeah. which is this yeah. grotesque a scene that uh, Flannery O'Connor, if she could, would rise up from the grave and pat him on the back and say, there you go uh, for that sequence. That is as horrific a scene as ever yeah. written by anyone, I think. Yeah, it's a black, it's a bleak scene, so. So I know you put a lot of work into the, the use of the horses in the uh, the Border Trilogy. Will you kind of uh, carry us through everything you, you've seen there and what you what you worked with there? Okay, originally I did, for the book, I did Horses as Warriors in All the Pretty Horses. And so I looked at horses as warriors from the optic of the Comanche, uh, Luis, the, the Mexican mozo from uh, La Purisima, and then, of course, horses as warriors with John Grady Cole and Rollins and Blevins. Every time they have to re-steal the horses or try to re-steal the horses, and then they go and they um, go through gun battle, and the horses perform right. capably. And so, um, if you look at the very opening scene of the the text where John Grady rides down into where the Comanche Trail runs down, and I've been there in Tom Green County where the Comanche used to ride south and north, they would go up and down, down to South Texas, and then back up into Oklahoma and Kansas, you know, before the big settlements in right. the mid-1800s. And, and so he has this exquisite scene of the Comanche riding down and their entire, you know, existence is war, and it's founded in war, and war is their religion, and it's just a beautifully written paragraph so you have the horses, this warrior as part of the Comanche war system. And then later when he's at La Parisima, uh, Luis the Mozo, who was in, you know, the uh, Mexican Revolution and hates Huerta, talks about the soul of the horse is a common soul and the soul of the horse is made for war. And if you have not gone to war on a horse, you don't right. know what true war is. Right. And so then you have John Grady going, initially, they steal Black Blevins' horse. And then later, John Grady returns to get Rollins' horse and bring it back. And when he eventually gets back to Tom Green County, you know, he returns a horse. And, and so the horse is historically a warrior, more recently a warrior, and then contemporary warrior. So you've got 19th century 
early 20th century, mid 20th century, Comanche culture, Mexican culture, Anglo-American culture, horses, warrior all the way through steadily. And so that was my dominant argument in the book. But then I started rethinking this when I, Rick Wallach asked me about writing an updated horses essay a couple of years ago. So I started thinking about it and I thought that, well, in the scholarship, there's a couple of things I see that I don't necessarily agree with. And one is, and I know this off puts scholars because the the referees who read my essay said it, and so did Rick Wallach <laughs> when he read it. But this, you know, fetish of John Grady Cole as this horse whisperer who loves horses and his soul is of the horse and he loves them and all of that. And I said I'd like to look at that. But then I also thought, well, McCarthy's body of work, these Western works, the Blood Meridian and the Border Trilogy are you know, you're talking 1,200 pages, 1,100 pages of text in four novels. And so there cannot be a common horsemanship and there cannot be a common horse and a common rider. Right. So I decided to break that down into four the novels, right? Blood Meridian, All the Pretty Horses, The Crossing, and then Cities of the Plain, and try to ex- extrapolate a unique horsemanship from each one. And so what I did with, because, uh, you know, I think that it does a disservice to readers and scholars and to the author when we just label horsemanship, you know, right. it's, it's too broad, it's too complex, it's too yeah. nuanced, right? I looked at all the text and, and so I looked at Blood Meridian, of course, and, you know, Blood Meridian, the scalp hunters are so ruthless. And I looked at how they use horses, right? They use horses and a mounted cavalry ray as a, a, a tool for killing human beings specifically. Right. right. You know, and so in combat, when they ride into um, the Galenos into their camp, they're using the horses as an element of height, of speed, of um, angle of attack, of velocity, of um, a point from which to strike downward, which really makes people on foot, you know, victims easily right. taken down. All, all the way like cavalry has been used since the, the days of the Phoenicians. Oh, yeah. And, and so, in fact, in this essay, I did look at uh, the Hittites and uh, Xenophon, so, um, who wrote text on for the cavalrymen as well as for the generals. And so I... Going all the way back to the Hittites, cavalry is mentioned in training horses for war. And so right. it goes back, yeah, 4,500 years or so. So it's been a, it's been a minute. <laughs> and so the, the scalp hunters use horses as tools to kill a human being specifically. And, and so that's the optic that I looked at for Blood Meridian. They don't name their horses. If a horse can't help them, it's useless, alive. A horse is a tool for killing a weapon for war. And that's what a horse is. Right. Then in all the pretty horses, I looked at it and I thought, well, really, what are they using horses for? Rollins and, and John Grady Cole are professional horsemen, caballeros, right? right? They use horses in a ranching specific optic for work. So they work ranches. And so when they go down to La Purisima, they, the vaqueros look at them and call them caballeros. Right. right? They recognize them for what they are, the text says. Yeah. 
exactly by the way they sit their horses and yeah. so immediately they are working the, on the ranch they're and hired he, immediately right and he impresses them and gets a better job by performing a great right a great bit of work with the uh you know the hobble breaking of the horses but right when he breaks that remuda of horses you know it earns everyone's respect but what's interesting is that the vaqueros like rollins on a more personal level than cole so and it's mentioned you know a couple times rollins is more personable cole is more off-putting but cole (laughs) does have this natural ability with the horses i'm not just yeah well cole gets connected to the uh the boss yeah, he's not he one gets of, he, he's with the suits, so to say. Yeah, and, and he also uh, and whereas Rollins is just one of the boys, he's still in the bunkhouse with the exactly. other guys. He's still yeah. working with them. Well, and you know, I think the other thing is romanticizing the role of the horse. So I know for myself, I would rather drive down a lonesome highway and look out and see a lone horseman, you know, herding a small group of shorthorn cattle, than to see two guys on three wheelers. Yeah, but I know from a efficiency, utilitarian, reasonable perspective, it might be better to have a couple guys on three wheelers and four wheelers. Yeah. It's just my romanticism that wants it to be something different. And of course, that is a, a huge part of what all the pretty horse is about. Is oh, that romanticizing at all? Yeah, and I think the scholars romanticize John Grady a bit as well. And I think McCarthy intentionally does it in this book so that we will do it. And don't you think he he kind of goes back and forth? Meaning, on the one hand, when you look at he's just a teenage kid, there is a there is a heroic quality to him. He is straight out of the you know giants walked here yeah. kind of footsteps. While at the same time, he is a teenage kid and he does everything dumb a teenager can possibly do. You don't mess with the boss's daughter. Yeah, you don't get in over your head because of this kid you feel sorry for him you don't lie to the authorities at every step he he kind of does everything wrong you can do and as much as he does all this heroic stuff everything bad that happens is his fault as well yeah and i think a lot of mccarthy's books are predicated on a catastrophically bad decision that the characters make and if you look in cities of the plain to move ahead a bit but grady he cole still has not you know, wisened up. He makes a lot of the same mistakes in Cities right. of the Plain, and he has a bed in that book. So, yeah. and so, so I'm kind of moved away from horses as warriors to more as utilitarian tools. And, sure. you know, Grady and Rollins as professional horsemen in All the Pretty Horses. But then when I looked at the crossing again, you know, with Billy and Boyd Parham, and the, I want to say five Parham horses. And the five Parham family members, there's a there's a tie-in here. Huh. Because at the end of the text, there's only one horse and one Billy. So Billy's four family members, his mom, his dad, his sister, who was dead before the text, and right. Boyd are all dead. And four of the five named horses are dead as well. I see the emotional attachment with um, Billy and the horses because he suffered, I'm just rereading The Crossing right now for Albuquerque in February, where I'm going to do a thing on Boyd Parham. And that book is bleak. And, you know, Billy and Boyd use horses as vehicles of transportation. Not that Rollins and Cole don't, but that's they're not professional horsemen. And they take the horses 
Billy is taking the wolf down, the she-wolf initially, as a means to get the wolf down to Mexico. And then the two other trips, he's using them as vehicles, as transportation. And while he does get into some shootouts and, you know, a couple of them where Boyd is wounded and then a later one where the horses, you know, three of the horses go down as he's leaving, you know, the country, I feel that, you know, he is so tied to these horses emotionally. Um, when Nino gets stabbed at the end of the text, he is just, you can feel his anguish. It's, well, oh, Nino, To me, that Nino. is one of the saddest moments in all of McCarthy. Yeah. You know, I put that up there with the, you have the father saying goodbye to his son at the end of the road, and then you have yeah. Nino being stabbed, and none of the rest of it hits me the way those two scenes do. You know, it's yeah. those, those scenes, uh, particularly with Nino, you know, it just seems so, so sad. You know, the horses are his family legacy. And yeah. when you read that, when they go after him, it's referred to over and over again as his father's horses. Yeah. Which is interesting because it discounts the role of the mother who is, I mean, we could go all day on how mothers show up and are treated in McCarthy. And we kind of, I kind of do it a little bit in my episode with Nell Sullivan on women in McCarthy. Yeah. But this is one of the few more positive women, but even so she's only in the book for, you know, a few pages. Yeah, and what's interesting is that when um, Boyd and Billy are riding after the initial, gosh, I want to say after the initial time down there before they're separated, Boyd doesn't want to ride uh, behind. He Billy. doesn't want to ride Bird. He wants to ride Kino. Kino ah. is a horse that his mother would would saddle up on. Huh. And the horse is unsaddled. And so Boyd is riding the unsaddled Kino is, I think, an act of closeness with his mother. You know, he's riding skin on skin with a horse instead of saddled. Oh, it's a way to reach out his mother to oh. touch his mother because Boyd was there when his parents were killed. And the Indian who kills him, he was yelling, Boyd, Boyd, because he knew their names, remember? Right. And he killed Boyd was hiding when they were killing his parents in the house. And so Boyd carries this tremendous guilt, which I think leads to psychosis, which is one of the things I'm going to discuss in Albuquerque, because I think Boyd is tremendously psychologically scarred in riding this horse bareback that his mom used to ride is a way for him to touch his mother long after she's dead. If you'd say to anyone, what's the animal you remember from the crossing? I think you and I might say horses, but for everyone else, it's going to be the wolf. The wolf, yeah. Go into the wolf much in your book, or is it? Oh, uh, yeah. I think the wolf, yeah. I think the wolf chapter is, and what I did was look at the wolf as negative metaphor for man's encroachment on a natural world. Huh. And so if you look at, one, the villainization of the wolf throughout the Middle Ages in Western Europe, coming over in the 16 and 17 and 1800s in the United States, moving westerly, especially before fences, wolves had to be eradicated because wolves would prey on livestock, even right. though the savagery of wolves preying on livestock is not as omnipresent as ranchers, of course, argued. But with the, the government bounty system in the late 1800s in the eradication of the wolf, the wolf is a perfect metaphor for man's, you know, desire to one control the natural world, 
but two, man's westerly mobility. Part of the philosophy of manifest destiny is, of course, man, especially Western European man, has rights to all minerals, all water, all land, all of the environment from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And so going into Hidalgo County in the, you know, the 1920s, when the text first opens, Billy, there's this brief scene of Billy as a child watching the wolves run right at night and snow and he's cold and he's watching them and they're like ghosts and right. and they're moving. And then that's the last time that he really saw wolves in a wild. And then when this rumor comes up that a wolf has taken down a veal calf, a very specialized beef product right. that's expensive to breed, raise and sell. That is a bad sign for that wolf. And so the she-wolf, after Billy catches her, he makes a spur-of-the-moment decision to go to Mexico with a wolf right then. And coincidentally, that is the same day that Billy's parents are killed by the Indian, quote-unquote. So he takes the wolf down, and the wolf is humiliated in so many different ways. She's caught by a child. She's muzzled. She's dragged south. She's kidnapped from Billy. She's forced to fight nearly to the death. He kills her out of mercy. Then we find out she's also a litter. And we also get a backstory where her mate had been killed in Mexico previously. So this wolf, this last wolf that no one hears anymore, has, you know, Billy actually hurt her, you know, in a little bit of irony that if he would have let her go, she probably would have gone back into Los Animas and breeded her pups. And then there would have been, you know, four or five more puppies that hopefully would have lived. So he actually, by trying to save her, actually doomed her and her litter. Yeah. And so doomed enterprises, right? There's a new dissertation title for a book on the border trilogy, Doomed Enterprises. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. so many, so many. I think McCarthy's a bleak writer if you just read him. So, but he's so much more, of course. But what people, you know, the wolf gets a lot of press, the she-wolf and the, the theme of the wolf. But of course, the wolf is only present in the first part of the text, right, the first one. third of the text. Right. And then after that, Billy is, you know, going feral. And after that, it's about Billy and Boyd and going back and forth a couple more times and, and you know, his and the interpolated stories. And what I've never been able to figure out is why does he shoot the hawk? Huh. It's the open of part two. There's something in Billy. And I don't want to, I don't know if it's malicious or if it's, I don't know, because in the very last scene with the dog, that's all, you know, disabled and, and walks like a crab and has just been beaten to the point where it can barely function as a dog. Billy runs off that dog and throws rocks at it. And the dog is just howling into the night. And I, that scene for me is just, is just brutal emotionally. Well, and of course it connects you to the family dog, which had had its throat cut. Trooper. Earlier. And there seems to be a pair, you know, the thing about Billy is, and for the whole second half of the book, he's looking for answers and he's looking for family. Yeah. And that's really true in Cities of the Plain as well. Although uh, I very much believe that we have two Billies in Cities of the Plain. And there's, I think, the one that comes from the first screenplay he wrote 
that morphs into uh, eventually the border trilogy, but it's really season plane was the screenplay. Yeah. And then the one that comes from the crossing, which is shows up in Dakota or the, the final portion. Yeah. But that, and that of course that dog comes up and he runs him off and then he feels horrible for doing so. Obviously Billy would have recognized if it somehow been his dog and they'd been separated <laughs> and it would have been yeah. very Disney. Uh, what was that Disney movie when we were kids Wallace uh, about that? dogs that and cat they get separated so far from the family and they cr- oh yeah they travel bound or something or, or no, fantastic voyage or fantastic Golly, journey yeah. or something yeah. like that not to be confused with the movie where they all shrink into microbial you know si- microscopic <laughs> yeah. size yeah. and they're all injected into people from an asmov story anyway <laughs> mccarthy would never be that sentimental and he would have had something even more bleak than what happens happens if it had been his old dog but there's such a plaintive, sad moment. Of course, we think of, you know, dogs are the wolves who became domesticated. Yeah. This is their payoff for being our friends. Well, you know, also the last night is the same night as the Trinity test. Right. Where they, and that was uh, 16 July, 1945. And I wonder how that ties into this because the night becomes day, but then yep. it goes away and he's calling the dog. And then eventually the sun comes up from the east. And then the text is over. Yeah. I mean, it's just yikes. And so in Trooper, of course, is the only other dog that we really see in this text uh, that's forefronted besides the, the mangled dog. And Trooper doesn't even get named until I think, you know, 180 pages in or so. So he just called the dog followed him. And something that McCarthy does is when he names animals that are important, it moves them beyond just the animal state, even if they're right. a, st- a stock animal like a horse to more a, an emotional tie to the humans. None of the scalp hunters are naming their, their horses, right? You got Glanton's dog and Glanton's horse, but right. otherwise, and yeah. then you got Lincoln's dog, but it's not named. Right. It's, but, you know, Trooper is finally named. And then there's this dog at the end that's just so sad. And then you have the Trinity test, which is the statement of man violating nature for right. all future. And of course, the, you know, the beginning, the orchard keeper starts off in Tennessee with, gosh, what is that place where Uncle Ather shoots the water tank? Well, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about, but it's up near Oak Ridge. Oak Ridge, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and as a, not to give away spoilers, but the notion of Oak Ridge and its importance plays uh, an important part of both The Passenger and Stella Morris, uh, McCarthy's uh, soon-to-be-published novels as well. And probably by the time I get this all edited and out there, those books will be out anyway. Well, so, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's it's fascinating. You know, go back to Billy shooting the hawk. It is such a weird sequence. And, of course, he's also got a, using a bow and arrow at that point in, instead of a yeah. instead of a firearm. And I, I've i written quite a bit on weapons and, and McCarthy. And you can absolutely track how they work in the Border Trilogy and things they mean. And so it's something about the atavistic and the savage and what that hawk is supposed to represent to him. But it, if it does nothing else, it ties us to, and I'm going to, this is going to be a segue you like here. It ties us not only from that hawk and the orchard keeper, but to the owl in cities of the plain. Because to me, when I think of the animals in cities of the plain, we have your requisite John Grady horse whisper moments, but really it's that owl crucified on the front of that truck. I think is indelible image that in the dog hunt. Yeah. Did you do anything with that owl or? Well, the rabbit heads too. Oh yeah. Those are pretty hard to forget. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Mainly what I did 
was uh, horses in the dog hunt when I looked at cities and I have two different, you know, shots of that, but there's actually, there's a hunt in the beginning of the te- early in the text that is not mentioned as much as the dog hunt at the end where they're hunting a, a sheep panther, a mountain oh, that's lion. Right. Yeah. And they, the hunt is unsuccessful. The dogs all come back and there's one hand that comes back with a, a rip in her, her torso and, but then they refer to another hunt in Mexico when they were hunting Jaguar. And so um, that was successful. And eventually they can't, you know, after the revolution, they can't hunt down there. And then here's this unsuccessful hunt of a mountain lion, which makes me wonder about as time evolves. And now we're in the 1950s is man's ability to hunt, you know, diminishing even with the animals. And so they are not, they can't hunt mountain lions successfully, but so they find these wild dogs who are, you know, holed up in the cave. And, and so they lasso and here they're using their horses again. This is kind of brings back to the circle to blood meridian where they're using horses as tools to kill. But then they're also like the, all the pretty horses where these are professional horsemen. Right. So they've kind of created this amalgam of the horseman who's a professional horseman who's also using the horse as a weapon to kill these dogs and so they're not beating down on them you know and shooting them with 4440s they are using um lassos and so they're popping these dogs and dragging them and it's just a very brutal scene yeah, it's surprisingly so, and it's almost as if there's a lack of respect for them because they're domesticated animals instead of yep. the way they would have handled the the panther or the jaguar or the wolf or yeah. any other kind of creature. Yeah, yeah, lack of respect. That's the that's the phrase here because they don't respect them because they don't just kill them, they don't just pop them on their their lassos, but then they drag them, bounce them around while they're riding around. Right. So yeah, there is no respect for these animals, and I think that diminishes. The characters a bit but then it's also in line with a lot of other mccarthy work with if you compare these feral dogs to feral cats but it's you know they're both doomed and faded yeah. so but in the in the orchard keeper the feral cat isn't killed by a human it's eaten by nature right. it's a nature on nature act here it's men using their tools to just indiscriminately bastardize right. these poor critters and just drag them along and and just beat them to death. So you know, there's a I've recently worked on how the bear, the short story or novella, yeah. I should say, by Faulkner's part of his novel, Go Down Moses, is referenced, I think, uh, pretty explicitly and purposely in the road. And I've, I did a presentation in Savannah that I hope to write into an article on how the allusions to the, the bear help us understand some things in the road. So one of the things that goes on a number of times in Faulkner, including in that story is, as we see as the railroad is built through the wilderness, how humankind, especially uh, white people's humankind, you know, incurs into the wilderness, destroys it, wrecks havoc on nature and the so-called civilization that follows does more and more damage. And the highway seems to be doing that same thing repeatedly in McCarthy. So in, in all the pretty horses, he talks about the, the roads that crisscross and how they would, you know, he goes up there to when he's later with the horses, the big trucks coming by almost blow them over sideways. Yeah. And then yeah. of course, in this one, just driving down, you know, killing all these rabbits and killing the owl show 
Yeah. The, these things are on the road and they're just going to get run over and destroyed by this mechanized human approach to the world. Onslaught. Yeah. Well, you know, it makes me feel badly that I haven't considered the crucified owl now because there's so many references to Christianity and Jesus Christ and, and Catholicism and, and just, I mean, and I'm, I'm going to have to revisit that. Well, that may be my, my apologies. Um, I want to say, I remember it as being a crucified owl, but (laughs) maybe when you look on the page, you know, it's inverted or inside out or something like that. So, <laughs> and it, an upside down crucified owl would really yeah, there's, be. There's your St. Peter you know, reference, right? Um, so, yeah. And of course, it may well be that I'm really thinking of Wiley Coyote stepping out. You know, he's been led, he's trying to trap the Roadrunner and falls <laughs> prey to his own, um, you know, machinations and he's slammed by a truck coming by. I was going to say, you know, the first scene in the cities. They're, they when the first ranching scene, they ride up in a pickup truck. They're not on horses, of course. That's right. So they ride up in that old pickup truck, and then they go to work. And then later, Grady runs the fences, you know, on a horse. But it's the truck is the new yep. thing, and of course, they've been replaced by these all-terrain yep. vehicles. And and so even if you're really rich, you'll have helicopter ranches. Wow. So we're guys are flying around on helicopters down here. So at the giant ranches. The well, and it shows you that John Grady's romanticization of working on the ranch forever that he has to give up that he has to give that up pretty quickly uh you know by the time he's just a couple years older and he's gone off to find a job he's already not working the pure you know ranch experience he had envisioned when he runs away from home and goes down to mexico i've always said that part of the border he's crossing there is he's trying to cross back in time you know he's trying to return to the 19th century and Again, there's that, you know, kind of foolish naivete there. When we get to, and it's, you know, horses do show up a little bit in No Country for Old Men. But yeah. again, we're back to the working animal, right? They use them just to right. go places. Right. The, and again, this is set in the, uh, what is around 1980 or so. So it's set before yeah. you have all the, eight, you know, three-wheel and four-wheel A2. I know they had three-wheelers back then. And I also know they were notoriously bad to roll over and tumble and Dangerous. kill people. I've known one guy who spent two weeks in the hospital brain and had permanent brain damage. And I know a, a friend who's a young relative, a teenager, uh, killed going up a hill that turned over on him. So when they finally came out to four-wheel version, it became much more safe. So yeah, it makes sense that Bell and his deputy are going out on horses. And it is interesting that the one that they have to be careful of is his wife's horse. So that reminds us of the Parhams, yeah. which I wouldn't have thought of. But I don't really get a whole lot more with animals no country for old men have you seen no. things there no so much the only things i i did mention the horses when i was talking about it and the novel came out right when i can't remember if, if i if gary fisket john sent me a uh, uncorrected proof copy of the road oh, that's nice which i have still and i can't remember if he sent me a copy of no country or if i used the first edition but it came out right when my book, I'd already submitted the manuscript and I called McFarlane and I said, Hey, can I do a short thing on no country? And they said, yeah. And so I did the horses, that scene where they ride down and to look at the massacre scene. And, and there's a lot of Vietnam stuff going on here. I'm, I just, you know, got that essay on Vietnam. And then I mentioned, uh, Chigurh shoots at, I don't know if it's an owl or a vulture on a bridge and he misses, which is interesting. And then, Bell finds that red-tailed hawk that's been killed on the highway. Yeah. Again, man's encroachment, and he looks at it. Well, and so one of the things that 
I see in McCarthy over and over again, and uh, it shouldn't be, I shouldn't say I see it because Diane Luce has mentioned, everyone else has mentioned it, is he loves intratextualism. So not only intertextualism, so we think yeah. of Michael Cruz's book, Books Are Made Out of Books, and which is a quote from McCarthy, and where he very purposely is making nods to this writer, that writer, this text, and that text. But he also makes references from one book to the next. And it's hard not to see that red tail hawk and not think about all the times he's dealt with hawks being attacked yeah. by people and what it, what it means. So it is interesting. Now I know when we get to the road, there just doesn't seem to be anything except for yeah. a dog. They could never get a hold of. Right. Yeah. Cause the boy doesn't want to hurt the dog and the dad wants to right. eat the dog. So, um, but yeah, no, I looked through the entire road yesterday. While I was thinking about this. The only animal that I see that was alive in there is that single dog that they hear barking yep. that they never really can catch. And then at the very end of the book, about page, I don't know, 182, when they've reached the ocean, the man thinks about life in the great deep. Are there squid down yeah. there swimming still? But that's still not a living animal. So the only thing I see is the dog. Yeah. But, but there are dozens and dozens of animal metaphors and similes in that book. And then there are, I don't know, 20 scenes of animal bones, mostly small animals, but there's cattle, there's a cat, there's fish bones at the coast, there's, you know, mounted deer head, there's um, some kind of critter sitting in a fridge yeah. at the mansion that they go into, one of the houses they go mm -hmm. into. So there are the simile and metaphor and then these bones everywhere, but there is nothing alive except for that one dog. And then what's interesting, the bird motif runs through the text, you yeah. know, the, the man in memory and dreams thinks of birds and crow and the boy asks about crows and there aren't any more crows are there. And he goes only in books. And, and so there's no birds at all either. And, I was trying to think and I didn't see anything just thumbing through the book, but I don't think there's their birds are bugs are mentioned, but they're used as like in conjunction of memories and simile birds circled as senselessly as insects trooping the rim of a bowl. And as far as I can remember, somebody has a spider tattoo and, and the somebody, an old man is spider thin but there's no bugs even, as far as I can tell. No insects, no arachnids, nothing. You know, part of that is it's a very cold winter in the time of the book's yeah. discussion. And so we don't know what would happen with a thaw of how, which bugs would come back, or which would not. But it, it seems that most of what bugs eat, just like most of what humans eat and most of what deer eat, are all, all gone. I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe ticks and, and lice would make a big comeback with the remaining humans for a short while, but that would maybe be about it. So, and it, yeah. But again, you know, the road is so much a novel about loss, and he definitely wants you to feel the loss. You know, most notably, we think about those trout. He, he wants to feel this loss throughout. And so that's why we keep having those kind of shadow impressions of the bones of the animals. You think of those, yeah. something he references in another text to, shadows of people incinerated at Nagasaki just left as an image on a wall somewhere. And now we see that really showing up in these throughout the road. Yeah. Cause he says bones of millions of fish. Wow. Millions. Yeah. So, I mean, everything is dead yep. except for a few humans. I mean, it's just black and 
something that really hit me when I was looking at the text again yesterday was that the, the boy mentions, if I were a crow, could I fly above whatever this bleakness is, this omnipresent fog or whatever this is, and could I fly above it? And the dad said, yes, he could. So, um, and so, you know, the, the disappearance of all these animals is just going and, you know, it follows the progression of the text, yeah. because if you look at the text in order of when they're set, you know, starting with blood meridian, where there's animals everywhere, you know, up to, I think outer dark, then the orchard keeper, then if you look at the trilogy and then child of God is set in the sixties, I right. think Sutri in the fifties, then you go up to no countries, 1980. Then you go up to whenever this is, and I'm not counting the epilogue right. for of course, Where he cities, jumps ahead five years yeah. or whatever, 10 years. I don't, of, I, don't yeah. know. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. I always tell and people so, that's his first science fiction novel. Because he, because <laughs> no, I think the book comes out in '96 is what I want to say, and, and yeah. the epilogue set in 2005 or something like that, isn't it? Or, yeah. or just after yeah, 2000, 20, anyway. It's in the 21st century. Yep. Yeah. So, but if you go from all the way from then up to the road, you know, animals fewer, 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 yeah. fewer, fewer. A dog. Yep. So that's why I think there's a lot of credence to eco criticism yeah. in McCarthy's book, undeniably so, and what some people point out is there's no guarantee that the he's very clearly tricky with what causes the disaster in the road. And I feel like there's actually some things that indicate maybe it isn't necessarily a nuclear bomb. Cause to me, there's not enough discussion about radiation and all that. Yeah. But on the other hand, that makes it even more horrible because, you know, or I should say it makes it even more horrible that we do it to ourselves that it's not yeah. simply something that happened to us. It's something we, you know, are doing to ourselves as we go. Yeah. You know, I know people, I know a couple of people who so despise the film adaptation of the road, which I didn't think was horrible, but I didn't think it was great. Yeah. But yeah. what makes them hate it is that ending sequence where it shows the family has that dog that we heard about. And I think what the filmmakers trying to say is these guys have been shadowing the father and his son all through the novel. Mm. And there's an indication a little bit of that's gone on from our uh, Hawkeye character who shows up at the end and takes the boy away. Yeah. But there's no indication, of course, they have a dog. And the idea is they're so well to do in their prosperity, they can afford not to eat a dog should they catch yeah. one. So it's yeah. a very, yeah. so I can see what a filmmaker went there. I just think it was untrue to the novel to go there. And that's the main thing stay true to the book. Change characters, change setting, change dialogue, change the lines, but stay true somehow. And they failed in that moment for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So, so Wallace, I always ask every guest this question first time to come on the podcast. What's your favorite McCarthy novel and why? Uh, the one I'm reading at the moment. Okay. At any given moment. But of course, that's not an honest answer. No, and it, just to you know, give you a little bit of freedom there. Almost no one has been able to just come down with one, but I always ask people to try. I'm going to try. Uh, I think, okay, of course, there's no easy answer, no short answer. I teach Blood Meridian in my research methods class because it can be, the grad students can approach it from a million different angles. Right. 
So I read that every year almost. I love that book, but I think the masterwork, I think maybe the other masterwork is The Crossing. Ah. And I'm reading it now. Get probably, I don't know, I've read it a number of times, but I'm trying to take my time right now to read it. I think it is marvelously paced. It does not feel like a 420-page book. It just it flows. If you don't get overwhelmed by the interpolated stories, the blind man and the church thing and the gypsies and the plane, and you just got to flow with it and then think about it. I think that probably The Crossing is my favorite. Uh, I would think just from a, a book that I like and I think is really endlessly readable. But I think that every time I read Blood Meridian, I see stuff that I don't that I didn't see initially, even though I've read it over and over and over again. I think that while The Crossing is very different, I would compare it to Light in August. I think that it some scholars don't like Light in August. But I think that Light in August is those, a master Those scholars work. should be ashamed of themselves, by the way. I concur. <laughs> I concur. So, But the way that, that Faulkner weaves these three lines, Joe Christmas and Lena and Gail Hightower, and then they come together and they're separated and they come together, I just think is masterful. And, and um, the pacing of that book, you know, I don't think you can – try to pace a book. No, it, it, it's just it's something kind, that's it's kind inherent. of perfectly structured in that case. And Faulkner yeah. has such a, a feel for that. I I'm with you on the crossing. I love the crossing. And there, there are people whose opinions we both really, you know, alike who are a bit cold to that novel. And I think it is some of the philosophizing, but to me that adds a level of, of richness to it. Remember he was accused and all the pretty horses are just telling a, Cowboy story, you know, how you can read that novel and then go pick up, I I don't know, go pick up Max Brand, Luke Short, and Louis L'Amour, yeah. and then read all the pretty horses and tell me they're the same thing. Or for that matter, pick up, you know, Lonesome Dove. It's still not not firing on all the cylinders that you see in all the pretty horses. It's, it's just not comparable yeah. in a way. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's. I mean, McCarthy's use of language, his arcane and archaic language that he uses, I think it's fascinating. You know, if you look at go to the archives and look at these word lists that he's written down, you see them in his notes and stuff. Oh, wow. I think it's is interesting. But the you know, all the pretty horses, I think, is of the first eight novels the most accessible. And but it is way beyond a cowboy story, and and it doesn't do justice to label it as such. Yeah, if you look at you know, Louis L'Amour is very formulaic. Yeah. You know, there's a good guy, a bad guy, a shootout, a girl, um, a fist fight. And happy ending. Yep. Almost all the books are like yeah. that, even though some of the Sackett books are different. He, well, he wrote but... he wrote eight books ten times each, you know, and he has a few <laughs> and he has a few swashbuckling ones. And I, I'm saying this yeah. is someone who read all those things, all the ones he published in his lifetime. I probably read three or four times a piece as a teenager and yeah. in college is yeah. something to do. But but McCarthy's just not aiming for the same thing the more is. Well, Wallace, thanks again for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. Wallace Sanborn, Chair of the Department of English, Mass Communication, Drama, and Graduate Program, Head of the Master of Arts and Master of Fine Arts and Literature, Creative Writing, Social Justice Program at Our Lady of the Lake University in San Antonio, Texas. He's author of Animals and the Fiction of Cormac McCarthy and the American Novel of War, a Critical Analysis Classification System. He's the editor of the Klondike Stampede, 
and his work has appeared at They Wrote On, Blood Meridian, and Tragedy in American West, Gail's Contemporary Literary Criticism, Harold Bloom's Modern Critical Views, Cormac McCarthy Journal, Southwestern American Literature, Texas Books and Review, Voice de la Luna, Iron Horse Literary Review, and Contra River Review. He has an article recently published in Cormac McCarthy Journal and one forthcoming in the journal. Thanks as well to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced, and music for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts we hope they'll someday see the light. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may also enjoy the Great American Novel Podcast, hosted by myself with Kirk Kernut. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. And despite the evening redness in the West, Reading McCarthy is also on Twitter and Facebook. Our website is readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the top of the webpage by the show Cappuccino, or you can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash reading McCarthy. <laughs>